Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My guest today is Lord Dubbs. Alf Dubbs was born in Prague in 1932 and came to Britain on the Kindertransport in 1939. A Labour councillor during the 1970s and MP for Battersea between 1979 and 87, he became a life peer, Baron Dubbs of Battersea, in 1994, serving in the Northern Ireland office under Tony Blair. He's also chaired the Refugee Council, the Broadcasting Standards Commission, the Fabian Society and Liberty. Very active in the House of Lords, he's probably best known for the Dubs Amendment to the 2016 Immigration Act and has been a champion for unaccompanied children seeking asylum in the UK. And we're meeting him at his office with a very nice watercolour of Battersea Power Station on the wall. Hello, Lord Dubs. Thank you for well, thank welcoming. You. Thank you for coming along. So as we, as we speak, I'm not quite sure where people will hear this, but as we speak, Boris Johnson's resignation honours list is the process of appointing peers into the spotlight. And obviously there are peers that do very hard work and uh, ones not so much. Do you feel like the system needs, uh, needs a bit of a reform? No, it needs more than a bit of a reform. <laughs> it, needs, it needs a pretty big reform. No, I mean, I mean uh, look, uh, I've all along believed we should be elected. Uh, there are problems about that, but mm. uh, but but they can be dealt with. I think we should be elected. Uh, and the trouble is, it, the system worked fairly well until you get a prime minister like Boris Johnson who totally abused it, uh, and, and therefore he's highlighted the real problems in the system. But whether we've had a Boris Johnson or not, I think we should the right thing to do. And I hope that Keir Starmer, if and when he becomes prime minister, will do it. Uh, that we've got to have some electoral basis for 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 getting into our second chamber. It, would anything be be lost by that? I wonder that I've got a, a, a colleague, Ian Dunt, who who sort of points out that sometimes the Lords is such an effective check mm. on Commons legislation, precisely because it's it's not elected, and that if you have a Tory landslide in in sort of both houses, you lose that check. Well, the, the, yeah, democracy has its problems, <laughs> but but yes. um, uh, look, uh, first of all, they say there are people here in in the Lords who'd never stand for election. Mm. Quite a lot of us have stood for election over mm. the years, but uh, so uh, they say some of us, some people here would not stand for election. And they say we've got expertise. Well, I think um, uh, the answer to that was given me by an eminent neurosurgeon who said you're only an expert for the first two years after you've left your field. Beyond that, you're, you're out of date, you're yeah. out of touch. Well, partly out of touch. Um, uh, and anyway, I think that legislatures should have experts to advise them not that they should be comprised of experts. Because in any case, what does the foremost uh, expert on nuclear science know, know about housing benefit or unemployment or, right. or, or, or primary schools or anything else? There's no reason why, why they, should, they should know any more than I do. So politics is, has to be a broad-arranging thing. And therefore, I, I don't like the idea that we should say, well, there's some pretty good experts. Now, on the other point, yeah, th- there is an argument that that because the Tories don't have an overall majority, although they're working very hard to put that right with these appointments, the Tories don't have an overall majority, so that they want to um, be elected, then that would change. And it, it, even if we had a different electoral system from the from the Commons, it would still result in in, in, in a different situation from now. Mind you, it would be possible to contrive a way so that no one party had an overall majority, and that would still be desirable in order that there is that element of checks and balances against a very one-party-dominated Commons. And during the last Labour government, there were there were points at which you differed from the government on certain civil liberties issues, the Iraq war and so on. I mean, everybody needs some... People are probably very familiar with the, the situation of rebelling in the Commons. Do peers have more freedom to be independent, or is the pressure from the whip still pretty intense? 
Well, the answer is yes to both. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. to say, when there is a key vote, the whips do press. But they don't have the same sanctions that they do in the Commons. Uh, in the Commons, if you step out of, out of line, you'll never, never get a job on the front bench, you'll never become a minister and so on. Well, it doesn't matter so much here because they're not, there are a lot of people here who are not that ambitious. So to that extent, the whips are not as strong. And of course, by having a large number of crossbenchers, they're totally independent of all, of all this. And when one speaks in a debate in the Lords, uh, I always say to myself, I've got to persuade the, cost, the independents, the crossbenchers, to see it our way. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it helps to make it not too much of a party issue. But we still have a three-line whip on issues, so on some issues. So um, there is a discipline, but it's not the same as in Commons. Right, right. And I mentioned your 2016 amendment earlier. Um, the government sort of reluctantly accepted that, then sort of rolled it back later, posed later amendment, and it generally takes an increasingly hard line on asylum seekers. Did you, considering the popular support you had around that amendment, um, are you surprised that it's been such a, a constant battle? Considering you're talking about, in this case, a very specific issue of unaccompanied minors. Well, actually, there were two amendments that I did. Uh, can I disentangle them? Mm, uh, there was sure. the first one, which is one that I'd never called it after my name, but somebody <laughs> else did. The media did. But um, that the government was forced to accept. Initially, they opposed it, voted it down in the Commons, but we had another go in the Lords. And during this time, public opinion woke up to it. And it was public opinion that suddenly became aware of what was happening. So, for example, I was walking down the road and somebody shouted at me. Well, usually that's abuse when it's a politician walking down the road. Oh, no, it wasn't. It said, keep going with your amendment. And I think the government realised that there were enough Tory MPs who were likely in the Commons to vote for the amendment, so they conceded. They then said arbitrarily, we're limiting the number to 480, <coughs> because they said that's the limit of uh, the capacity of local authorities to provide foster families, which again we disproved. But they had stuck. The second amendment, which actually <coughs> affected more unaccompanied children, was based upon the Dublin Treaty while we're in the EU, where under something which I call Dublin Three, a refugee child in one EU country could apply to join a relative in another. So a Syrian boy in France could apply to join an uncle in Birmingham. Um, that we got in, after some battles, into the 2017 Act. The government took it out in the 2019 Act and it stayed out. And I, I feel that was pretty shabby. In a way, it affected more of the children stuck in Calais and elsewhere than did my amendment. Uh, uh, and so that was a pretty, pretty miserable thing to do. So the argument about children has gone on ever since. Well, you've seen a few Home Secretaries come and go. Is Suella Braverman, you think, the, the least sympathetic? Oh, she's the worst. Yes, she's awful, appalling. She calls refugees invaders. People seeking safety are not invaders. Invaders, in normal language, are the enemy. These people are not the enemy. These people are seeking safety uh, uh, from war, persecution, uh, seeing their families murdered and so on. Uh, these are people who are entitled, in human terms, to have be able to rebuild their lives, and we should help them. Some of them. We can't take them all. Mm. Nobody says we should, but we should take some of them. Um, and I, I, I read an interview where you, you sort of said before, Braverman, you know, Priti Patel was the worst you encountered, so it's sort of getting worse. Mm. Um, is there something beyond the individuals, just systemic in the, in the home office? And if so, is it, is it malice, incompetence, or, or both? Well, I attribute it to the individual home secretaries right. or, and possibly the prime ministers. Well, it, it's, it's an interesting 
thing for a psychological study of Priti Patel and, and, and Suella Bravman because Priti Patel's family came. I remember I was active campaigning for East African Asians to come to Britain. And so it's a bit ironic that, that she then took the line she did. I think Suella Bravman also has a, a background abroad. Uh, and I think it's a bit shabby that people who get here then pull up the drawbridge and say nobody else should follow them. It's, it's cheap politics. I think they both thought, and Sarah Bradman thinks, that this will give her f- f- favours from the, uh, some of the Tory MPs who supported Boris Johnson uh, and, and some of the Red Walls constituencies. And I, I think she's wrong. I think she's bluntly wrong. And she's wrong in principle, and I don't think it'll help her either. So you think that kind of your, your average member of the public is more sympathetic than these politicians assume? Well, I think so, but but as far as I'm concerned, there is, has to be, and we're part of a battle for public opinion, because if we're going to tone down some of the awfulness of toy policy, then we have to explain what the issues are and make sure that we bring as many of the public on our side as possible. The trouble is that from the Brexit campaign onwards, um, when Boris Johnson said that if we don't leave the EU, 80, 70 to 80 million Turks are poised to enter Britain, it's a complete and utter lie. And he knew that. Mm. But it was done to scare people. Uh, and so the words take back control meant keep them out. Now, it's ironic that last year, the last 12 months, have seen the highest immigration figures we've ever had, net immigration figures. Uh, and uh, asylum seekers only a small proportion of those anyway. So the whole thing is an argument concocted out of nothing. And the fact that they say they want to keep the numbers down, they've totally failed to do that. Now, I respect the fact we're taking Hong Kong people. I respect the fact we're taking Ukrainians. But even so, they're not keeping the numbers down. What's more, the irony is, of course, we need the workers. We're short of workers in a lot of our basic industries, not just the health service, which depends very much on immigrants, um, but also the hospitality industry, horticulture, and so on. They all need more workers. So it's against our interest to say we must not have any more people here. And it's, I mean, see, the government made exceptions for um, asylum seekers from uh, Ukraine and from Hong Kong, and there was great public support, particularly um, over Ukraine. So, what does that tell you about the way that? that sympathy can be extended in certain circumstances, but not others? Well, it tells me two things. Um, one is it tells me that where there is enough television exposure, the public, when they see what's happening, become more sympathetic to the plight of the victims. When my amendment, the original one, went, was going through, it was a film showing Alan Kurdi, a little Syrian boy, drowned on a Mediterranean beach, which made people aware of what was going on. So there's that. I think the other fact I have to say is, of course, the Ukrainians are white, and the other people coming uh, come from countries where, 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 where which are non-white. Mm. Uh, so I think that, that that's an element as well. But equally, I think the publicity that has been given to Ukraine makes people feel more sympathetic when they hear of the bombings and the floodings and so on. People are more sympathetic, and I, I think if people knew more about what's happening in Afghanistan and Syria and the Horn of Africa, they would also be more sympathetic. But as long as our leading politicians don't use nasty language like invaders, language like cannibalize and so on, uh, and people think some of our country's under threat. If they use that sort of language, it stops the public being as sympathetic as I'd like to think they would be. And Labour's leadership is very nervous around immigration issues of any kind. How optimistic are you of a, a change of tack 
if they win the next election? Oh, I think there'll be a change of tack. Uh, I'm quite sure of that. I'm sure Keir Starmer and, and Yvette Cooper, if, if as I hope she becomes Home Secretary, are optimistic. But no, I, I, I'm quite convinced we won't get all we want and we'll have to keep arguing with the government. But it'll be a lot better than what we've got at the moment. Indeed. How much direct dealings do you have with the... Uh... With the, with Home Secretaries? Oh, uh, with the Home Secretary, mm. with Swella Bravman. Oh, various points. Yeah, Bravman. No, I've never met Swella Bravman. I've never met Pity Patel. I met the others. I met, I met uh, Theresa May uh, and people. But, I, but since, since that, I haven't met them, met them, no. I've met other ministers. Mm. In fact, when I was trying to get a Ukrainian girl here that, that Pity Patel was blocking, uh, and it, it, it absolutely outrageous. Uh, it was a 17-year-old girl, her father and... Uh, her mother were in, the, were in a war zone. She was just escaped from a war zone. Uh, she was terrified out of her wits, uh, locked herself in a room all the time because the government said, we haven't got enough safeguarding. We had copper-bottom safeguarding. We had two parents who were teachers who were going to be a host uh, who had been vetted, school had been vetted, local authorities had vetted. We had absolute safeguarding measures. And when I spoke to the immigration minister with whom I had two meetings, about this and other matters. And, I, I, and he more or less implied that he was the Home Secretary was blocking it, Pretty Patel then. Uh, and I said, what can I do? And he said, shout at me. So I proceeded to shout at him. <laughs> and, and in the end, the girl came. And she's now do, as we sit here, she's doing her A-levels. You know, so, yeah. so um, uh, there was a shabbiness about the government's approach, uh, which left humanity behind. Well, this is why I wonder what I asked about sort of just incompetence earlier. It seems there were certain situations like Ukraine uh, early on trying to, you know, settle people. The offer was there, but it wasn't working very well. Afghanistan, some of the promises made to people there, the interpreters and so on. Even getting British citizens out of trouble spots, they seem quite sort of bad at. So is that is that a big part of it when you say shabby? Not just morally, but the, they just don't have it. Well, together. well, I mean, for example, let's move on to other point. Uh, there are 170,000 asylum seekers in Britain who are waiting for their claim to be determined. The system is completely broken down. It, many, many thousand more than there used to be. And when you have 170,000 people sitting around, not allowed to work, being put in hotels, no self-respect because we've taken that away from them. That is pretty awful as well. And, and then the, the more populist newspapers will say, oh, well, these people are just benefit scoundrels. Absolutely not. Uh, all the ones I've talked to, if they're kids, they're desperate to get back into education. If they're adults, they're desperate to get to work. Uh, that's what they want. They don't want to be on benefits. They want to work mm. and, and, and establish themselves in this country. Uh, so, you know, we're not helping them there either. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1930s, the failure of the rest of the world to provide safe harbor um, for Jewish refugees from Europe was, was enormous. Kindertransport being this sort of one of those exceptional programs. And I think nobody disagreed with, with that, that there had been this, this failure. Was that sort of moral shock 
what sort of explains a sense that, you know, you see this post-war sense that maybe should be more welcoming. And then that shock dies away after the generations and people forget the consequences of I, I think there's some I think I think there's some there's something in that yes but of course uh, the movement of people generally and immigration as opposed to asylum claims mm, mm. immigration has, uh, has shot up right across the world because there are more people on the move they can travel more easily and so on uh, and unfortunately blurring the distinction between immigration and asylum seeking uh, weakens the argument because whereas immigrants can come to the country if we let them or, or, or if we want them or, or we, don't, we don't let them. But uh, asylum seekers should have human rights protection, something the government in its present legislation is trying to uh, take away. But the, they have international human rights protection through the Geneva Convention, mm. the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So uh, to that extent, by blurring the distinction between immigrants and refugees, we're weakening the cause of refugees. I think we've got to be absolutely clear. There's nothing unworthy about being an economic migrant, but it doesn't give you the human rights protection that being an asylum seeker should give you. Do you get very sensitive then, I suppose, to the words that are used? You mentioned some of the words that Bravman used. And so, so being concerned with this issue over a long period, you, you sort of notice like certain words coming in or returning. Yes, I, th I think the language that, that has been used particularly recently by government ministers uh, has got worse and worse or has got more and more hostile. Although, of course... Uh, the public may well interpret that as being hostile to immigrants generally. So there's, there is, as I said, a battle for public opinion between that side of it, the Cyrilla Bravman attitude, and those of many of us who believe that um, we have to be welcoming of asylum seekers, be welcoming of refugees, and provide them with a decent opportunity uh, and not allow this language to distort public opinion. But there is a battle for public opinion. Uh, uh, and it isn't just here. We've seen how extreme right-wing parties have exploited it all, whether it's in Germany where Angela Merkel came a bit of a cropper in the elections, uh, in France, National Front have been doing rather well, in Italy, the right-wing, in Hungary, they're always that right-wing, or for many years, uh, Austria, all these countries have, uh, have, have, have seen extreme right-wing parties exploit the migration asylum issue for their own shabby political ends. And that has poisoned the atmosphere in many of these countries. Not quite as bad as that here, but it will be, it'll become like that if Suella Bravman keeps speaking the way she does. How welcoming did the UK feel when you arrived in '39? Well, I was six years old. I, 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 Hard to remember. Uh, well, I can remember things that happened now. I think people were pretty welcoming, yes. And I read that you regained your Czech citizenship or sort of joint citizenship. Was that, a, but quite recently, was that a reaction to, to Brexit? Yeah, yeah, I just felt simply that I, I wanted to feel European. I, I, I passionately opposed Brexit. Uh, and as an individual, I was, uh, uh, you know, I've always believed in, in, in a European, wider European and international sense. And so I felt I'd like to have a, a European passport, just so that I feel more European. And how close do you have you felt over the years to to your birthplace? Because I know that some of your family, your mother and father, came out. Well, eventually you. it was all quite difficult. Yeah. Uh, well, um, how close? Uh, you know, I've had a twinge when I've gone back to Prague. But right. look, look, I was brought up 
from the age of six in this country. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm British. Uh, whatever my Czech passport says, I, 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 I am British. Uh, and I'm happy to be British. I'd be happier if we went pursuing the sort of policies we've just been talking about. But I'm happy to be British. And, and I felt from an early age, you know, this was my future. I think some of the ones who came on, I was one of the youngest on the kinder transport. Well, the older ones, they had more difficulty because they, they were more, um, their values were more those of the country they'd left. And so they couldn't switch values quite, quite, quite so easily. But in my case, I think I, I found it pretty easy. But uh, I repeat, I do get a twinge. I've been to Prague and I just, just occasionally I get a twinge. Right, yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't be here, I mean, in many ways, if not for Nicholas Winton, who organised the kinder yeah. transport. Did yeah. that, is that what sort of made you quite idealistic about politics or the power of individuals to really do something to, to change lives? Well, uh, look, Nicky Winton was a great guy. And he and I became very friendly. He had a waspish sense of humour. Uh, but, you know, uh, he did it. And what happened was that he he looked in, in the autumn of 38 when the Nazis occupied the Sudetenland and the, the few Jews from the Sudetenland fled to Prague. But but he, he saw what was happening. And unlike other people who simply say, that's terrible and walk away, he said he, he's not walking away and he did something about it. And that's what made him different from many other people who see terrible situations and then don't do anything. Uh, and to that extent, he and I occasionally chatted about child refugees and so on. Uh, and uh, I suppose in my subconscious, I feel I owe it to him that I should do more for child refugees because he did it and others should be influenced by Nicky Winton. I think, on the other hand, there's a very good argument for child refugees and supporting refugees generally, uh, which doesn't depend upon one's background. So it's, it's a bit uh, bit mixed. It's as I've seen you talk in quite sort of you know moral terms about you know, politics or the potential of politics on your own career in this? You know, I suppose, how do you describe your your mission or your or your motives or why you have... Well, look, politics, there's a lot of accidents in politics and things just happen and stumbles on things. It so happened that this bill was going through in, in 2016. We had the Syrian crisis. There was a bill going through. Yvette Cooper, our front... Uh, from the Commons was chatting to me. She said, what about, what about you could do an amendment on this? And I said, yes, I could, I'll do that. I put down the amendment. And it took off, not because of my arguments so much as because my background appealed to the media. And it became part of the story that I, a child refugee, was yeah, supporting yeah. child refugees. And I think that helped politically. I hadn't talked about my background particularly. I'd never denied it, but I'd never made use of it. And suddenly it became quite useful but not because I started talking about it, but because I started being asked about it. Uh, and, and so that was helpful. What's the sense of purpose that keeps you so active in, in the Lords, you know, at a time when, uh, sort of an age where some people just step away, they're just not turning up, and you're still like well, look, if I, pursuing if, something. If, I, if the system were different and I was going to be replaced by active Labour Party people or a Labour Party person, I might think differently. Uh, I don't overstay my welcome here. On the other hand, if I resigned, if I left the Lords, uh, I would not be replaced. Uh, the Labour Party would just have one vote less. But I think it's also that I've worked with a lot of NGOs like Safe Passage, uh, they keep me at it because they they have a level of commitment. And I think the young people that I've seen working as volunteers in refugee camps, whether well, it's Calais, in Calais or on the Greek islands, they have given a year or two of their lives to help their most vulnerable fellow human beings. And I think these people, they have the right to say, we, have, we make demands of you and we should meet those demands. 
Oh, it's a sense of responsibility. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, when there are people who have this level of commitment, if I said, oh, I'm bored with this, now I'm going away, I think I'd be terrible. Then people like me in politics should respond to that and do something about it. Thank you so much for joining me, Lord Dubs. It's a pleasure. Thank you for, thank you for asking me. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or reviewing us on iTunes. You can also support us on Patreon, where you will get episodes early without ads and with bonus goodies. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.